Last words. People tend to remember the last words that people speak uh, before they pass or they leave this world. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, the inventor and painter, said, these were his, supposed to be his last words, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. For all those who are perfectionists, you might, you might relate to these internal voices. Uh, but uh, Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna in uh, the second century, uh, he was, uh, gave his life for Christ, and he was being uh, uh, tied or attempted to be tied to a, a pole. And he says to uh, these uh, attendants or guards, leave me as I am. The one who gives me strength to endure the fire will also give me strength to stay quiet still on the pyre, even without the precaution of your nails. For 80 and six years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And, and Polycarp was appealed to uh, recant uh, his faith in Jesus Christ, and he refused. Then I think of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, the last sermon that he preached was in Memphis, Tennessee on April the 3rd, 1968. Uh, it was, I see the promised land, and in that sermon he talked about uh, that uh, the idea of God coming to him and asking him what era of world history would he like to have, have liked to have lived in, and he kind of goes down through the centuries, each one. But at the end, he says uh, he was content to, to, be, to live in that time that he graced the world with. Um, he talked about how uh, he wanted to develop in people a dangerous unselfishness. But he says, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land, and I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, and of course, he was constantly uh, given death threats, and, and uh, soon after this sermon, he actually was ushered home. But uh, here's the last words of Todd Beamer, uh, a passenger on United Flight 93 on that uh, infamous day of, no of September the 11th, when uh, on that flight, it was clear that hijackers were uh, taking over the plane, and they were uh, uh, apparently aimed at the White House or the U.S. Capitol, and uh, Todd Beamer with some others uh, had uh, stopped that movement. And, <clears throat> and the last words that he said, are you ready? Let's roll. <laughs> well, <clears throat> we are now looking at the last words of the Apostle Paul that we have recorded in the scriptures in this fourth chapter of Second Timothy. This is the last sermon in this series. It's not going to be my last sermon here, uh, but uh, in these words, uh, Paul is uh, really handing the baton of his leadership uh, to his young lieutenant, uh, Timothy, who is in Ephesus, uh, being really uh, the representative apostle uh, to provide 
uh, leadership and, and shepherding oversight there. And uh, these words really have a similar solemnity as the words of like Jacob on his deathbed to his sons or, or to uh, Moses' words to Joshua or David to Solomon. They ring somewhat even of Jesus' words to his 12 apostles or his apostles uh, when they, uh, he was given the Great Commission. But <clears throat> this is not to a group of people. This is to a single man. Paul is in prison. He's nearing his death. He knows that any moment or any hour uh, his life was about to be over. Uh, he is uh, giving these final words to his son, beloved uh, son in the faith. <clears throat> Please follow with me on verse 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we, we face many forces that uh, seek to distract us, uh, divert us, deter us, or defeat us in our following Christ and fulfilling his uh, call on our lives and his mission in this world. Uh, Paul knew of Timothy's voices. He, he knew of Timothy's personality weaknesses, vulnerabilities, that Timothy was timid, that he tended to pull back, he, he tended to be a man who would let fears dominate his life, that he was young, he was reserved, he was more oriented to be in the recesses and have others lead and let other older uh, leaders lead. He was physically frail. Uh, he had regular stomach ailments and digestive problems, probably from stress. Uh, he was tempted to quit, uh, to take a more easy way, to step out of the limelight, to not be such a lightning rod. Timothy was also single. Uh, he was not married, as Paul was not married. And so we have uh, an unmarried apostle handing off the leadership to an unmarried lieutenant uh, and I think in that single state, we find that Paul gives words to, to Timothy, and I think he also knew his temptation. He says, flee the evil, youthful lust, flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. So the apostle Paul understands the nature of his spiritual son. And many of you may identify with Timothy. You may identify with the with his personality, and you might be one who tends to be more fearful or timid. Uh, you don't like to be out front. You don't want to like put yourself out there. 
And it's like all the things that, uh, that Timothy's personality tended towards, Paul was calling him to push through it. <laughs> and you might be here, and you might uh, sense that you might be that type of person as well. But I want you to hear not only the words of Paul to Timothy, but I also want you to hear God's word to you through the Apostle Paul to Timothy, because I believe here God is speaking to all of us. Uh, God is speaking through Paul that all of us are called to fulfill uh, our mission that he's given us in this world. Uh, he says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, or make foolproof, uh, bring to completion, carry through to the end the particular mission, the particular calling that God has laid on you. Uh, do you know what your mission is in this world? <laughs> do you know what your particular calling is? You know, when Jesus got to the end, uh, he said in his prayer to John, in John 17, to the Father, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And in this passage, Paul can say with a clear conscience to Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul is saying, I've completed uh, the mission that God has called me to. Now you uh, would say, well, I'm not Christ, that's true. And I'm not the Apostle Paul. Well, that's true too. But you are, if you're a child of God, you're a believer, you have a particular unique spiritual DNA that only you have. And you have special spiritual gifts and a configuration of personality strengths that only you have. And the scriptures actually tell us that uh, in 1 Peter 4, that each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So God has given uh, to each person a special giftedness and a calling to use in the kingdom of God. Uh, and so we, it would do us well to think about what our particular calling and mission is and to ask others to help us to clarify how we best serve the body of Christ. So while there might be unique aspects to Timothy and Paul's charge, we uh, hear these particular words. I think in this section, this passage, I think uh, the way we can be encouraged in this is to consider the things that Paul was talking to Timothy about. And the first is the audience of the charge, the audience. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. And so these, this, this, th these words have a very solemn, uh, sobering uh, framework. Uh, here, Paul, is, he's, he's, uh, he's getting near his death. And apparently, church history has it that he was beheaded uh, under the reign of Nero uh, on the Austrian Way. He had served 30 years without intermission, laboring as an apostle. And so he's transferring this leadership role, and he says to Timothy, uh, and really this word is like a word to testify under oath. Uh, he, it's solemn, it's an emphatic utterance, I charge you, Timothy. Uh, and so he's trying to remove himself from this charge, and he wants them to sense, this isn't coming from me, Timothy. I'm just an agent. This is coming from 
God himself. This is coming from Jesus Christ himself. You need to hear that. Um, but what's interesting about this is that he says, uh, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. Do you catch that? It says that Jesus Christ is the one who is to judge the living and the dead. A lot of times we don't think about Jesus in that role. We don't think about Jesus being the judge. But actually, the scriptures are pretty clear. We, you know, I, I can think of the, uh, the movie with Will Ferrell and, uh, was it Talladega Nights? He was uh, the, <coughs> playing Ricky Bobby, the NASCAR driver, and the family sitting around the dinner table, and he's praying, and he says, Dear Lord Baby Jesus, Dear tiny infant Jesus, just a little infant, so cuddly. Uh, and a lot of times that's how people want to keep Jesus as this baby Jesus. He's cuddly and he's nice. But in this passage and in the scriptures, you just can't get there. But that, by the way, I just read in a major Christian publication yesterday, uh, a doctoral student was writing on the nature of God the Father as not just Father, but also Judge. But in that article, it says, uh, he says, Christ shows us God's warm, fatherly heart. Now, that is true. Christ does show us Christ's warm, fatherly heart. But he doesn't go beyond that. And, there, and here's the thing. In the scriptures, Jesus comes not only as the Savior who, whose heart has broken and cries and weeps over Jerusalem, but he also comes as the reigning king who comes to execute justice and judgment on the earth in the final day. <clears throat> Just here a couple verses uh, we find in 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Uh, and you see these other verses in John 5. It says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of God. Uh, we find in Revelation that uh, people are uh, seeking to have the rocks fall on them uh, because they want to hide from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. This is Jesus. He's coming uh, uh, full of fury. And it says, For in the great day of his wrath to, is uh, to come, and who is able to stand? But then in probably uh, the most prominent passage that reveals uh, the power of the returning Christ, it's in Revelation chapter 19, where heaven is open, and he sees, and before John was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true, with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God, and the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. And he treads the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is not the normal 
picture that we have of Jesus, but you need to understand that Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. Um, Jonathan Edwards was a, uh, a major uh, theologian pastor in the 1700s, uh, a key leader of the Great Awakening in our nation at that time, and, uh, but he was, uh, he was fired by his church. Uh, actually, they had a vote uh, to dismiss him, uh, and the vote was 230 uh, to 23. Only 23 people wanted to keep Jonathan Edwards as their pastor. And the key issue was, was that Jonathan Edwards was holding to a doctrinal position that to become a member of the church, you should be a believer. You should have a professed faith. Uh, but back then, like, uh, anyhow, things got really messed up. But so he, they let him give his farewell sermon uh, to uh, the congregation, and he preaches on a passage that addresses the nature of the judgment seat of Christ. And he says uh, something to the effect that, um, that we will all have to give an account. He, he basically says, I'm going to have to give, I'm going to have to stand before Christ, I'm going to have to give an account for my ministry uh, to you as your pastor in my teaching capacity, my shepherding, my prayer, my, 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 my pastoral care, and my preaching and teaching. But you as a congregation will have to uh, give an account to Christ as well. And it just was a very sobering moment. But it's an important thing for us to realize. And so Paul is coming to Timothy, and he's trying to like jolt him to the eternal realities of what's going on in his position and his calling. And so he calls him... To, uh, to, to this charge in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. But then we find in this uh, the calling of the charge. In verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so here Paul is focusing Timothy on his principal call, and it is to preach the word. Now this word to preach, it means to herald. It is a word that is, is about uh, the, the proclamation of good news. And when we move into this Advent season, we hear the angels coming, uh, proclaiming good news that a Savior has been born. And the essence of the message that Timothy has, that Paul has given to Timothy, is a message of good news. You're to preach this good news of a Savior. Someone uh, said uh, it's like the town crier coming, saying something like, Hear ye, hear ye, a message from the king, from the royal scroll, with the imperial seal. On this day your king summons all who have hated him, demeaned him, conspired against him, to come and lay down the the arms of your rebellion, turn from your sedition, and swear loyalty to your king by which... Uh, he will grant you full and free and everlasting pardon. And on that day, appointed by his secret counsel, he will come and live with you and give you every blessing in his treasure. This is the word of the king. And that is in the nature of this heralding that Timothy is being called to. Uh, it is, has a sense of urgency. Martin Luther said, although I am old and Experienced in speaking, I tremble whenever I ascend the pulpit. 
It's a very weighty thing. He's dealing with eternal things, heaven and hell, life and death matters. And so it's a very sobering thing. But there's a contextualization for the proclamation. And he talks about reprove, rebuke, exhort. And in those three words, uh, we are given that the scriptures, the message of our scriptures is to be uh, communicated in 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 reference to the state or where a person is. It's to be sensitive to uh, the conditions uh, and the state of where a person is. There's, you know, there are different situations, and sometimes the word uh, needs to be uh, one that provides arguments and clarity and reasoning. Uh, sometimes it's a rebuke, a cor- you know, where a person needs a moral correction, but sometimes it is a exhortation or an encouragement and uh, John Stott says for some people are tormented by doubts and need to be convinced by arguments others have fallen into sin and need to be rebuked others again are haunted by fears and need to be encouraged God's word does all this and more we are to apply it relevantly and so it is in that context but uh, it's also to be uh, in season and out of season, in season and out of season. And in this uh, utterance of in season, out of season, it's really not referring to uh, uh, just proclaim it regardless of how people are feeling. It's not about uh, you should be brash or you know, don't care. You, know, you just preach it when people don't want to hear it and when they do want to hear it. It's not what this is saying. It's, what it's saying is you should be, it's to the herald or it's to the minister of the word they are to be ready at all times whether they feel like it or they don't whether they're tired or whether they're not uh this past monday <coughs> i was with uh, antonio uh, a good young brother in our midst and and uh he was rather tired at the end of the day on that monday night and we were actually getting ready to go out and have a dinner together and uh, on the way there, he gets a call from Reuben, our youth pastor, who absolutely needed him that night to help with the youth ministry. And he said, I don't really feel like doing this tonight. I am really tired. And I, I said, well, look, I have a word for you. <laughs> I said, here, here's, here, here's the word. And I, you know, uh, be ready in season and out of season. Uh, be ready, you know, <laughs> you know serve whether you feel like it or you don't and he did and he's you know he turned and I I got him a meal and he went and and he served that night and I I was I appreciate that kind of leadership in our midst thank you Antonio are you here I think yes see you back there so we are uh, to be uh, this is the 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 nature of the uh, or the calling of the charge is to preach the word in season out of season reprove rebuke exhort with patience and complete patience in teaching. But then the nature of our charge, the nature of our charge, essentially, no. <clears throat> so I, I, yesterday was my wife's birthday, and I took her out to dinner on Friday night, <clears throat> and uh, we're in this uh, very nice restaurant, and I had ordered a really nice steak, but the waiter never asked me how I wanted it. And so I said, I need to call him back. And I said, you didn't ask me what, uh, and I said, 
he didn't ask me what the nature of the steak should be. And he looked at me and he said, well, the steak is dead. <laughs> and of course he smiled. <laughs> he said, you mean how you want it cooked? I said, yeah. So, well, what's the nature of our charge? It's a fight. It's a race. And it's something that must be kept. And so Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Uh, these are words that describe exertion. Uh, actually, the word uh, for fight is the word for wrestling. Uh, I wrestled in high school. Uh, and I can tell you that those seven minutes were the most exhausting seven minutes I can ever remember. Uh, it is just all out. Uh, and I can, I can sense that this is the kind of exertion that Paul is calling uh, Timothy to, to fight this good fight, to finish the race. And it's a keeping of the faith. In the, and when he says keep the faith, he is really talking about protecting and guarding the good deposit. It is about guarding the sound doctrine and the teachings, the body of truth that you have been given. And so uh, Paul is saying that he has done this. He's fought the fight. He has finished the race. He has kept the faith. Uh, and so he's, uh, it's an expression also of a drink offering, like he's, his life is being poured out. Uh, and so that is the nature of, the, uh, of our charge in this passage. And so it is a fight, and he mentions the nature of the people uh, in this fight. And he talks about that some, uh, there are going to be those, a time is coming, they will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so uh, Paul is saying this is going to be the nature of, of your ministry. There's going to be those who cannot stand the truth. They will refuse to listen to it. Uh, instead, they will want to accumulate teachers that will appeal to their own uh, desires. And so he's saying, what Paul did not say was, well, listen, Timothy, you, there's nothing you can do about that, so just don't worry about it. Just, you know, take a break. But no, he in tells Timothy to do the exact opposite. He tells him to engage. Uh, and he encourages them to do the, the work of an evangelist. He tells them to do the, the to fight and to run. Uh, there was a pastor, his name was Dr. Jim Feeney. He was a pastor for many years, and he retired. And uh, he spent three years visiting churches uh, just to get a sense. And he says at the end of those three years, and he didn't do a, an exhaustive research, but from his experience, he says the church in America is not well. Uh, and he talked about some damaging trends. And, uh, and he went to different churches, big churches, small churches, different denominations. Uh, but uh, he says, my purpose for sharing these observations is not to be critical. I genuinely love local churches. Uh, in a spirit of sincere love, I have a concern for the church. And the top one that he mentions is that there is a famine in, uh, of hearing the word of God in many churches. Uh, he quotes uh, Amos 1, 8, 1, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, if not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. 
Uh, and he mentions how he would go into churches and there would be very little uh, from the Word of God or from the Bible. Uh, there was an absence, he says, a widespread absence of the teaching of sound doctrine uh, and that pastors apparently had sadly gotten, gotten into the habit of diminishing the importance of sound doctrine. And so uh, this is the context that Timothy is in is also a context I think we can say as uh, many are experiencing in our country as well. And so this is a fight. And Paul tells Timothy these four things in this fight. He says, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your mission. Uh, the, word, the first word, be sober-minded, is a word uh, in the NIV. It says to keep your head. Keep your head in all situations. I think about keeping your head. Well, what is that? It's like you are going to be so inundated, you're going to be so overwhelmed to uh, be so confused. Uh, there's going to be so many forces coming at you that you will be tempted to cave in. You will be tempted to stop. You will be tempted to quit. And he says, you are to keep your head. You're to be sober-minded. And the picture that I have is actually from this uh, war movie, uh, We Were Soldiers, that Mel Gibson uh, was portraying a uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore in Vietnam, where he had led 395 troops into uh, enemy territory. They were being attacked by 4,000 equipped North Vietnamese enemy soldiers. And all I remember is that he's all being overwhelmed his men are being overwhelmed. He's standing on this mound, and he's, he's like uh, taking all of the issues in, and, and the shots are being fired, but he is like assessing the context. But I say he is keeping his head. He is doing the strategies to do everything that he can to guard his men. And so we need to be a sober-minded people. We need to recognize that there will be forces, and you will often feel overwhelmed in your callings. Uh, you'll be forced uh, often to feel like you have to cave in. But he's saying, be sober-minded. But he says, do the work of an evangelist. Not everyone is called or gifted as preachers or teachers. We all have our particular gifts. Uh, we don't know if Timothy had this particular gift, but he was called to lead a gospel movement, to advance a gospel movement within the church of Ephesus. And that's where he is, by the way. He's in Ephesus, the church where Paul uh, gives that epistle about that this is a church of Gentile and Jews together, that Christ has de destroyed the dividing wall of hostilities. He's united the two into one. And he says, this is how the gospel is manifested. And this is how you're to live as a new community before the watching world. And, uh, and so... It is a call to do the work. It is work. Unity building is a work of the gospel that we're called to do. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, Marie and I were in uh, New York at an urban church planning conference uh, that uh, was for movement leaders in this country. Somehow I applied and got accepted. It's just a small group of under 100 uh, leaders from all these different denominations that represent 75% of all the church planning movements in our country. Uh, and in that platform, there was uh, Asian speakers and Hispanic speakers, and there was a, a woman, and there was uh, 
African-American and there was uh, Anglo guys, but in the audience, it was mainly old white guys uh, who represented all these different denominations. And what was very clear is that all of the platform speakers were saying the trends and demographics and the nature of this mission has changed and it's rapidly changing in this country. And unless we understand the mission field and the change in the mission field, uh, we're going to continue to lose our ability to minister. And basically, the church is in decline, and uh, the population is growing. But uh, Tim Keller talked about five particular trends uh, that he says has taken place. The reurbanization, that is more people are moving into the cities. Gentrification, where the middle class are moving in, often dis displacing the poor. Metropolitanization, where the suburbs are becoming more urbanized and multi-ethnic. Uh, there's the vanishing neighbor, or people are becoming more isolated, uh, and technology has a lot to do with that. There's polarization, political divisions, and hostility. Uh, social media doesn't train you to debate, it trains you to scream. <laughs> uh, and then there's the uh, economic uh, inequalities. But he's, this is what he says, every day in North America, these five things are becoming true. More people are moving to metroplexes. These are areas are more, are more multi-ethnic, more hostile for the faith, more divided socioeconomically, more full of lonely people, more polarized and partisan than ever before. We need churches that address these things. We need disciple-making churches where the gospel is lived out in this kind of situation. And he said, the more diverse your congregation is, the more credible it will be. And I'm listening to this in one speaker after the next, after the next. And I'm realizing that what you, Church Faith Christian Fellowship, have been working through and applying over decades, the disciplines, the spiritual mission that you've been working on to be a united community of faith, uh, to demonstrate the presence of Jesus, this is something that is so precious and so much needed in the larger mission world. And so, while individually we all have a role, as a church, we have a role of stewarding the mission that God's called us to. The final thing, the motivation for our charge. Henceforth, Paul says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Did you catch the crown of righteousness and who it's given to? Not just Paul, but all who have been really good Christians. Uh, it's to all who have really been obedient. Uh, it's for those who have really practiced the Ten Commandments, uh, who are really good doers, who are justice people, uh, is that what he said? All of those who have longed, who have yearned for his appearing. Paul knows that none of our obedience, none of our righteousness can ever make us acceptable in Christ's sight. But it is a longing. It is a yearning. It is a faith pursuit of Jesus. That is what gives us his righteousness. And so there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life 
has set you free in Christ Jesus. And so we find that we are not judged because we have failed. And by the way, you know, in this great uh, judgment seat of Christ, I've often wondered, you know, uh, about the tears, about the tears. You know, it says that Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. I'm wondering, when did those tears emerge? Like, it's like right at the beginning of the whole heavenly Jerusalem. And he wipes every tear from the Where did those tears come from? And I can only think this. I can only think this, that those tears are in the, in the process of the great judgment seat of Christ when the nations and the people who have rejected the grace of Christ are judged. And all of the believers are present and watching this judgment. And I can only think they would say that you and I will say, as believers standing there, that should have been me. That should have been me. I should have, I, I'm the one that deserves the judgment and the eternal judgment and justice of God. I could have done better. I should have done better. But at the end of the day, Jesus wipes the tears from your eyes and, and he says, I love you not because of your righteousness and not because of your good deeds, but because of my righteousness and because I love you. And because of that, we can celebrate in this. My last, uh, my, the pastor that mentored me was Mark Pett, and he, uh, he got cancer, died of multiple myeloma in, the, in his 40s. But on his deathbed, uh, loved ones were surrounding him, and he said these words. He says, can you hear them? Can you hear them clapping? <laughs> and apparently, he was like on the threshold of heaven. And as he was in the process of moving into this glorious moment, he's recognized, we're recognized, and he's moving into this great celebration, uh, this great worship celebration of every tribe and nation and language standing before the throne and crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so as Revelation ends, it says, Come, let him who hears come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. That's our calling. So what are your calling? Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your mission. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us these words of Paul. Uh, to Timothy, and we thank you that you are a God of all grace, that, Lord, you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Lord, we pray that you would allow uh, this good news, this, this amazing grace that you have given to each one of us to be a means of motivation, that we would want to be faithful to you with the callings that we have. Help us to know what they are. Help us to be faithful in fulfilling them, and we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand together. I think we're going to sing this by a cappella. <clears throat> Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. 
Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flows be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. And now may the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with each of you now and forevermore. Amen.